This is not the media. This is hell. Today, with climate change occurring in a devastating manner and far faster than anyone really cares to admit, we are likely looking at a very, very near future of over 100 million refugees fleeing areas that will be flooded and drowned with rising sea levels. Despite that global climatic destruction facing us all, humanity continues down its path of cruelty and brutality toward one another. I know it's not a pretty picture. We got here by believing that if we slowly implemented policies that would eventually save us from our inevitable ruin, that incrementalism and never doing quite enough to address our most pressing problems but doing just the right amount to keep those crises going was somehow going to save us. Instead, where it led us to was a lack of imagination that culminated in there is no alternative, and we're prodded into going along with the herd thinking. We'll talk owls, the desert, our relationship with nature, climate change, President Trump, cruelty, brutality, and a whole lot more when we speak in a few with yet another returning guest this week, writer Ben Ehrenreich, author of Desert Notebooks, a roadmap for the end of time. In 2011, Ben was awarded a National Magazine Award. His previous book, The Way to the Spring, The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine, based on his reporting from the West Bank, was one of The Guardian's best books of 2016. Ben was on This Is How last year in February 2019 to talk about his article at The Baffler, After the Storm, Progress and the Demented Quest for Historical Purity. You can find that interview with Ben at our website, thisishell.com, when you cl- when you search on Aaron Reich. You can follow Ben on Twitter, at Ben Aaron Reich, and you can find out more about Ben at his website, benaaronreich.net. And of course, we'll wrap up this week, as we do most weeks, with the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff wants to sell you another improved fascism. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, any plans for your weekend? Uh, sorry, hitting that button. Uh, working on the Cicel stuff. Uh, reading, working on my garden, trying uh, not to get in trouble on Twitter. I got to get me... Uh, have you gotten in trouble again recently? No, I'm not going to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> so... There. Did you see why Donna Merch was suspended from Facebook for three days? Oh, no. She posted in as a comment in somebody else's post, Americans are dumb. And they banned her. It seems kind of reductive. For three, <laughs> three days. Yeah, it's just kind of silly. But at the same time, that's worthy of you getting banned from Facebook for three days. And here's the great part about this. We'll be sharing this show on Facebook <laughs> with a comment that got somebody else suspended from Facebook. You've been saying everybody's stupid for a really long time, so you've got, you got to watch it, Chuck. i got to get my girl lady to give me a haircut this weekend. The weather's going to be nice. The likelihood that we'll get an argument is probably far less because it's not going to be 95 this weekend. But the most exciting thing about my weekend is the latex gloves that we ordered on our first day, me and my girlie, our first day of following the stay-at-home order, which was way back, we looked it up, on March 6th, the latex gloves have finally arrived from China. So if you're curious how long it takes latex gloves to get to your home 
from China when you're in the middle of a pandemic? It's about, let's see, four months, almost five months. What's the first thing you're going to handle to celebrate? None of your business. This week's question from hell is what will finally unite the left? What will finally unite the left? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. Get your This Is Hell face mask today by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or be the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, which is, again, what will finally unite the left. You can leave your answer to this week's uh, question from hell, as you can every week for the question from hell, at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex, how have listeners answered the question from hell since yesterday's show? Uh, what will finally unite the left? What will finally unite the left? David C. says architecture on Quibi. <laughs> Jesus. If you would have told me those three words <laughs> six months ago. Uh, Tyler R. says Chelsea Clinton 2024. <laughs> Uh, don't tempt them, Good Tyler. Lord. Eric T says, when they're all lined up in the same wall because we were too busy in screaming splitters at each other. <laughs> and finally, Andrew P says, a global pandemic, economic collapse, and police brutality, or nothing. It's either now or never. Again, Andrew, don't give him a choice. <laughs> Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question mail. Send him in now. Uh, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question mail following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. What? will finally unite the left. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. You can post it on Facebook. We're announcing this week's winner at the end of the show today following Jeff Dorchin and his moment of truth. So get your answers in now. This week, Jeff wants to sell you another improved fascism. Time for Neighborhood News, where we share what's happening in the area immediately surrounding this here studio. After the show yesterday, and thanks again to Richard Norwood for producing yesterday's show. After the show, I left here, our office and studio, office and studio that we have, thanks to your support at thisishell.com when you click on support. My plan was to just head home for lunch, maybe take a nap, and then do whatever research and writing was necessary for the following day's show, today's show, as I do every day immediately after our live stream. So I get to the corner, looking both ways, because I before I stepped into the very large and clearly marked crosswalk that we have here on Devon Avenue, the street in front of this space. While crossing deep in thought with my head on a swivel, because no matter how large and clearly marked a crosswalk is, drivers in the area tend to ignore them and speed right through as if they had never seen a crosswalk and do not understand its function. Which kind of makes sense. They all seem to be going from downtown to the suburbs or the suburbs to downtown. And more times than not, it's a very, very high-end SUV that runs through the crosswalk, even if you're trying to cross, you know, like a Land Rover. In fact, I didn't even know Jaguar made an SUV until one almost hit me at the corner. I swear that intersection at Bell and Devon is going to be the death of me. So I was on high alert for traffic, but I was not on alert for what I was about to witness. Watching my step, looking down to make certain I did not step in that pothole, the next thing that came to my view was a pair of very clean bleached white tube socks that apparently someone was wearing without shoes. As my gaze drifted upward, 
I realized the hairy-legged man with sculpted calves was wearing white tube socks, a very tight pair of leopard skin patterned briefs, and nothing else. The guy was built. He clearly worked out and was posing with his rippling muscled back to me, contrapasto like a statue of a Roman emperor, with one foot slightly forward from the other. His left hand was on his hip while his right hand was tilt, uh, lifting a bottle of Gatorade, tilting it to his lips, striking a nearly perfect S-pose with his arms. It was quite the sight. A friend who lives in L.A. told me once it's the kind of thing they see all of the time. I've been to L.A., and yes, it is the kind of thing you see all of the time out there in Los Angeles. However, seeing near-nude preening and bodybuilder-like posing on Devon Avenue, kind of surprising. I know it is because the women wearing shadors, hijabs, nijabs, and burqas, who you regularly see in the neighborhood, also acted very surprised. Some stopping dead in their tracks, others turning their backs and walking as quickly as they could to get away from the corner Adonis. A friend once told me how he was talking to someone on the phone who he knew in L.A. The L.A. acquaintance said when he looks out his window, it's like living in a Tom Waits song. My friend looked out the window of his apartment here in Chicago in the uptown neighborhood after his friend spoke. He saw a man dressed as a sea captain walking down the sidewalk, and in the street was a man riding a unicycle while twirling an umbrella over his head, despite there not being a cloud in the sky. My friend said his L.A. acquaintance, who described life there as being in a Tom Waits song, Living here is like living in a Hieronymus Bosch painting. And that's this week's news from the neighborhood. Coming up on This Is Hell, it's time we reconsider our relationship with nature while there's still nature to do it in. We'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question, Mel, which is... What will finally unite the left? What will finally unite the left? And we will be announcing our favorite and the winner of a This Is Hell face mask, which are suddenly back in style. Who knew? Oh, yeah, everybody. During the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, Jeff wants to sell you another improved fascism. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. Here we are. Facing a pandemic, a pandemic that is unleashing more brutality and cruelty than we were already experiencing with climate change and the everyday violence that permeates our reality. Yeah, things are not great, but at least we still have nature. For now, returning to This Is How writer Ben Ehrenreich is author of Desert Notebooks, a roadmap for the end of time. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Ben. Hey, Chuck. It's great to be back. Ben was on This Is Hell last year in February 2019 to talk about his article, The Baffler. After the storm, progress, and the demented quest for historical purity, you can find that interview at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on Ben's name. Follow Ben on Twitter, at Ben Ehrenreich, and find out more about Ben at his website, benehrenreich.net. You start your book writing about a hike in nature with a couple of writer friends. This is while you were 
living with your partner in a small cabin in the desert near Joshua Tree National Park. During the hike, you see owls in flight. You describe how the owls took to the air in a sudden rustling burst, and they went silent. I barely glimpsed the first one, a flash of wide white wings as it glided by above us. Too big a thing to be so quiet. It soared off in a broad arc and disappeared behind a hill to the west. The second one, though, the second owl, passed low enough that for an instant I could see its flat, tawny face, the mottled white and brown plumage of its belly, those bright alien eyes. It circled once and flew out of sight to the east. Later, you point out that when I did start writing your book, uh, all I wanted was to remember the owls. I wanted to pin them down like any other memory so that they wouldn't fade too quickly. One day it occurred to me I wanted to be able to read back and remember what it had felt like, the uncanny beauty of their flight, those late autumn flowers, the violet light of dusk, but they didn't let me. They wouldn't stop flying. They disappeared behind the rocks and kept reappearing again and again. Outside of that just being beautiful writing, seeing those owls essentially inspires this book. So why is it so difficult to put moments like those into words? And more importantly, what does it say about our maybe our relationship with nature when that kind of uncanny beauty, as you call it, is so difficult to capture and then read back and remember that feeling? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a good question and one that's uh, eternally flummoxing for um, for writers. Um, and you know, I think what you uh, what we can accomplish with language. Um, is ultimately a, a different kind of reality than whatever we're we're trying originally to represent with it, um, which is something we have to eventually make do with. Um, but the, I mean, the, the, those owls um, really pretty literally ended up taking me um, places that I did not at all expect to go. Um, I just started reading about owls um, in various works of, uh, of literature and mythology. Um, and that in a, way that completely surprised me and swept me off my feet for about a year um, resulted in the in this book and Desert Notebooks. And these are these odd paths that we can take, we should take, that you take. And at one point you're talking about time, and we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But just so you know that I ended up going down weird paths as well when I was reading your book. I uh, went down this rabbit hole yesterday of alternative ways of measuring times. There's a Thai clock, the Chinese key, Swahili time, the 100-minute, 10-hour day uh, of the French Revolution. So, yeah, your book it was definitely de- taking me down different paths as well. Afterward, oh, you caught the, you caught the bug. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. It was, it's very, and, and that's what, it's a really fascinating book. You jump from place to place, but you're going down different paths. And yeah, we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, afterward, going to uh, after you go on this hike in near Joshua Tree, you go to the only re- Indian restaurant in the small town near the park, where the conversation turns to one of them, one of your friends saying, "It's a little bit long quote, but no matter how pointless things may have felt at any given moment, you could always tell yourself that you were taking part in a conversation, an exchange that stretched back into the immeasurable past and on into the future that you couldn't yet imagine. That was the conceit, not progress, but continuity at least. You could tell yourself that it was the conversation that mattered, this stream of voices flowing through the centuries, this ancient, almost sacred thing that is bigger and deeper than any of us alone. But what if it's 
going to end soon? What if someone in a generation, perhaps two, will write the very last word? What if the future does not include enough human beings to keep the conversation going? What if it drifts off like a party at the end of the night with only a few drunks left mumbling in the corners? I think we're already there. What if the humans who remain are too busy surviving to tend to the books and the service? What if literacy has a horizon and it's near? It's all just noise to them. What Was it a feeling of meaninglessness that the desert had conjured, or is it something else that I'm missing? No, I wouldn't say meaninglessness at all. Um, but I think a, a sense of the of like radical impermanence, um, you know, that, that nothing that nothing lasts. Um, and also, and you know, I talk about this elsewhere in the book. One of the things that the desert does to you. Um, and for some people, it's a terrifying experience. For me, it's always been a kind of ecstatic thing. Um, is it radically decenters your world? Um, it, it becomes like very, very, very clear there, very, very fast that you are not the center of things, um, that you are not the only thing that matters. Um, and that whatever narratives, um, you've spun your world out of, they kind of all unravel out there. Um, and, and you're faced with, a uh, a reality in, in which you are, um, you know, not even peripheral. Um, and, you know, in the same way, I think if you, if you haven't spent time in the desert and nature does this generally, I think the desert does it more starkly because things are starker there. Um, you know, spending a, a night outdoors in a place without much light pollution and staring at the sky can have the same effect, that kind of, uh, you know, existential displacement, um, where suddenly everything, that you have um, woven to make sense of your life, like just just unravels, um, and I, I don't think that's meaninglessness exactly. I mean, it's uh, it's it's something else. Um, and for me, that's always been a really important experience, um, and a, one that I think of like you know very very positively, and, and not as a not as a scary thing. That meaninglessness, the reason it was sticking in my head is because yesterday we were uh, talking to writer and journalist Brendan O'Connor about the far right, and he mentioned its embrace of nihilism and how that nihilism, that meaninglessness to life, serves the purpose of the ruling class. What role, how much of an impact does our relationship with nature, or lack thereof, have on any growing feeling of nihilism, that nothing really matters, even fueling the far right? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think... um and we can get into this more, but one of the things that um, that this book is about and that became really clear to me living out there is the degree to which the sort of establishment ideologies fueling our, you know, our society broadly put, uh, meaning, you know, capitalist Western society. Um, one of the things it absolutely depends on is an understanding of nature as if not dead, uh, certainly without, uh, certainly without consciousness, um, certainly without any kind of life that is really analogous to our own. Um, we are the only truly living conscious things in the universe and everything else, you know, there's plants, there's animals, but there's kind of, they're kind of like these fleshy mortal machines, um, that can be, you know, they don't, they don't have any, you know, there's no, forgive me for this word, but there's no spirit to them, right? We're the only ones who have that. We're the only ones that have might have some kind of relationship with higher things, um, if we even have that. And I think there's a basic nihilism in this um in this outlook, you know, which is a which is an outlook deeply rooted in the Enlightenment. Um and um and it allows us and has allowed us to to conceive of 
everything that's not us um, as fungible, you know, um, every, from human beings to mountaintops to oceans. Um, if we can't turn it into money, um, it doesn't, it's, it's not worth anything to us. And I think it's precisely this outlook that, that's gotten us in the um, environmental bad straits, which are seriously bad straits um, that we're in right now. Um, and I think, you know, we could talk about the, the nihilism of fascism, but I think that there's a, there's a deep nihilism um, beyond, beyond, you know, often, you know, nominally religious mainstream capitalism. Um, you know, we've been seeing that in this country in um, full bloom since the pandemic started, um, as all of these upstanding Christian business leaders uh, want everybody to go back to work, um, even if it kills them, even if it kills their parents and their grandparents, um, and now wants everybody to go back to school so we can get the economy running, even if it kills the kids. Um, and, you know, where the only thing that matters um, is the... Uh, that money keep reproducing itself, um, and of course, landing in certain pockets. Um, I, mean, I think that, that I think that is a deeply nihilistic worldview, um, and uh, we don't usually call it that. You, you write how you and your friends were talking about the end of time and the increasingly probable destruction of everything we knew and loved, and then you write. I felt an unfamiliar gladness, soft and uh, pressing, bubbling up. I've thought about it many times in the months that have passed since then, the strange buzzing joy I felt standing in that parking lot saying goodbye and then driving home alone. Even at that time, it felt crazy, like I really was high, though I was entirely sober. I didn't intend to write a book at all, much less to wage a battle against time, or at least against a certain conception of it, the one that still rules most of our lives and determines how we live them, how we conceive of what has passed before us, and of the futures it might still be possible to build. How does our conception of time rule our lives and determine how we live them? And to what extent do we recognize that ruling of our lives by time? I mean, I, mean, I think we're usually not very conscious of it until it's disrupted. Um, and once it's disrupted, we suddenly become extremely conscious of it. And I think, I think that's happened for a lot of people in the last few months, um, you know, since the normal routines of our lives have been thrown into, into chaos by the, um, by the pandemic. And suddenly people are like, time is suddenly doing weird things. People are talking about this a lot, you know, they're like, no one knows what day it is. How long is an hour? How long is a day? Um, you know, sometimes it moves incredibly slow. Sometimes it's weirdly fast. Um, sometimes it bends. Um, you know, even if we're completely sober, time is weird. Um, and I think this was also true um, in the first few months after uh, the current president was elected, um, when the news cycle went into, you know, uh, this sort of methamphetamine fervor. Um, and suddenly time was doing all these funny things and, 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 um, time had this, you know, if time had been a straight line under Obama, suddenly it was like a roller coaster, um, going around all these weird bends and suddenly we're upside down and we know what's happening. Um, and I think it's this kind of experience, um, which occurs when a, a society is in crisis of some kind, um, that we start to understand that time is actually a collective experience. Um, time is something we create together. Um, our experience of time is something we, cre we create together. And I think it happens individually too, right? I mean, if you, if you experience a personal trauma, 
um, one of the really lonely things about that is feeling like you've been thrown out of time, like you're working on a different time than everybody else's, um, and your, your sense of time is broken while everybody else is just still, you know, going along with their lives. Um, and, you know, it, it was that sense that made me start um, really wanting to figure out um, what, what time was for us. Um, you know, especially, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphor um, but we talk about the end of time. We talk about, you know, um, if we're talking, you know, in sort of apocalyptic terms, we, we actually say the end of time more often than we say the end of the world. Um, and this notion that time itself could somehow grind to a halt. Um, so if that was what we are, you know, conceivably facing with this, um, you know, really catastrophic, um, climate crisis, then like, what, what could that, what could that mean? So those are some of the questions that got me driving, that were driving this book. Yeah. And uh, things like the, the concept of time collapsing, which I found fascinating. Uh, do we consider time in say a desert because we're outside of the constraints of how capital commodifies time? Do we, is that why we reconsider time when we are in nature because we are outside of it? you know, to a certain extent outside of capitalism and markets? Well, I think, I think it's because we're outside of a human, an entirely human context, you know, like our lives in, in cities, you know, maybe you see a rat in the subway, you see some pigeons, uh, there's some, you know, straggly trees that like grow alongside the, the road if you're lucky. Um, but we, and you can't see the stars. Um, so your only sense of time outside of um, the time of your work um, and your leisure, um, you know, which are really the two forms of time that are completely, um, you know, uh, regulated by the demands of, of capital. Um, outside of those, uh, we don't have any access to other kinds of rhythms. There's the weather, you know, every, there, there's, you know, you get a birthday every year. So there's some sense that the, we, we kind of know that the planet is, is spinning and that's why we mark years. Um, but if you're you know, in the desert, and I think this is true elsewhere, um, but certainly in the desert, you have, you see those stars spinning above you every night. Um, and this opens you to a completely different, um, sense of chronological rhythms, um, which are way longer term. Um, and also which point to, you know, your absolute tininess in this, in this giant universe, um, and the tininess, um, and really absurdity of those notions of time that you normally live with. Um, and, and not just the stars, but, you know, you're, you're aware of the seasons in really intimate ways. Um, and you're aware of um, the really kind of deep time that makes the landscape it, itself change. You know, if, you, if you're spending time hiking out in the rocks and you see these cracks in the rocks and you start to, you know, look into the geology and you start to understand the way wind and water work on this landscape. And they do it not over decades or centuries. Um, but over millennia um, and, and, and over hundreds of millennia. Um, and that, I think, opens up a completely different sense of, um, of the limits of the universe. You were mentioning our significance. I've always been struck by the notion, notion that when we look at the stars, we realize how insignificant we are. And I've always had a near opposite feeling, which is that I feel like a speck, a minuscule part, an atom, a neutrino that is part of something far more significant and important, the vastness of the universe. Do you get a feeling of insignificance or a feeling of significance when you're in the desert? Both. Um, you know, 
I think by decentering yourself, you're suddenly able to um, to see outside this kind of human narcissism um, that usually drives us. Um, and you see everything is absolutely pulsing with life. And you see all these other dramas um, occurring all around you, these you know, animal dramas, the mineral dramas, the dramas of these um, you know, plants that manage to eke out a, a life in a place with so little water and such, you know, um, such harsh uh, levels of heat and sun. Um, and all of, all of those narratives are totally fascinating. Um, and the more you kind of can, can push aside your own narrative and whatever narratives are dominating your Twitter feed, um, you, you, you open up, um, a much bigger, bigger world. I think there's a, there's a line that I, I, I quote in the book, um, which is, uh, in the book, I quote it from, um, the great 19th century French revolutionary, uh, Louis Auguste Blanqui, and he's, he's using it, um, saying it's a quote from Pascal. I'm fairly sure that Pascal was actually quoting Giordano Bruno. Um, but it's, it's something like, um, that the, um, the universe, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to mess this up. Uh, um, you'll get is it. it. Yeah. Is a, is a sphere, um, whose, uh, surface is nowhere and whose center is, um, is everywhere. Um, so it has, it, you know, and, and that's a, that's a kind of mind blowing notion, right? Um, but in fact, like if you're insignificant, if you're not there, the center of things, um, that they're in fact infinite centers. Um, and, and so it's not one of, of, uh, you know, for me, a sort of nihilistic notion of insignificance, but a, but a, but of a an absolutely teeming, abundant amount of significance that like everything is crawling with meaning um, and crawling with life, um, which is a really uh, different and I think exciting way to see the world. One of the criticisms that we're hearing on a regular basis nowadays is how society has become so narcissistic. Do you think a disconnect from nature? provokes, promotes, or even causes the kind of narcissism that seems to be permeating our society? I think, I think it's related to it. You know, I mean, I think something happened, um, in the enlightenment, um, that allowed human beings to start to see, um, nature as dead, um, or nature in mechanistic terms. Um, and I think capitalism has really thrived on that. Um, I think, you know, fossil fuel, uh, fueled capitalism has sort of, um, made that, uh, made that real, right. Cause we're able to do these extraordinary things, um, using oil and using, um, other fossil fuels that no humans were able to do and no other animals were able to do. Um, and it's easy to, uh, to forget, um, the rest of the, um, you know, the, the living world, even as we're destroying it, um, and yeah, but I think, you know, the way most of us live, uh, you don't see the stars, you really don't see them. Um, and you, and you don't see much that's alive other than, you know, other humans and some pets. Um, and, uh, I think that produces a, um, a really dis distorted sense of, uh, of perspective. Um, and I think the damage that we've done, um, you know, the absolutely like unimaginable levels of damage we've done. Um, to um, basically every ecosystem on this planet um, are unimaginable, I think, without that extraordinary level of, of narcissism and, and ignorance in which we live. 
We are speaking with writer Ben Ehrenreich. He is author of Desert Notebooks, A Roadmap for the End of Time. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Ehrenreich. You can find out more about Ben at his website, BenEhrenreich.net. You write, I was trying to understand not just time, but writing too. And I realized that time and writing are inseparable. Writing extends us in time. It tries to so that things won't fade too quickly. But you don't mean only literary works when you're talking about writing, as you explain. By writing, I mean something more basic than what gets called literature, the art of inscribing, typing, scribbling, carving, or painting pictographs or glyphs or letters just like these, lines and arcs and loops that stand in for sounds and combine to form words capable of preserving thoughts, ideas, memories, impressions, histories, myths. But as you asked earlier, what if literacy has a horizon and it's near? Is that more basic writing, the kind that can preserve thoughts, ideas, memories, impressions, histories, myths? Is that in any way at risk of nearing its horizon, in your opinion? Well, you know, I think um, if, if humans are, then then writing probably is, yeah. Um, I, I think human beings have a few more, uh, you know, we will we'll spin around this, uh, this globe a few more times, um, whatever the circumstances are. Um, and, you know, I think, um, and perhaps we can get into this more, um, but one, one of the things that I end up sketching out in the book is the way um, we understand time um, really through the, um, through the notion of progress, right? The time is going in a certain direction, it's getting better, et cetera, et cetera, um, is actually a, um, from its very roots in the mid 18th century, um, has been a sort of coded way of talking about race. Um, it's a way of displacing like space onto time and displacing race onto time, right? So that certain people, um, and in the beginnings, it was always, and, and really still is, um, it was Africa um, and the Americas, meaning the indigenous people of the Americas. Um, they were the past, right? They were backward. Um, they were primitive. Um, and then there were the advanced societies of Europe uh, and, uh, you know, Anglo-European North America, um, which are, are the future um, and which are pushing constantly into a better and better future. Um, so there's this sort of racist notion um deeply embedded in the, in the whole way that we sort of conceive of time and it's still there in the way we talk about um you know development and developing societies and we have all these very very um polite ways of of, of talking about these things um but um one of the things that became clearer to me the more i read from this book was that a lot of the people uh, such as condorcet one of the the big early articulators of um, the notion of progress um, but also Hegel, um, who were thinking about this, mapped it out also in terms of writing, um, so that the, the civilized people, um, the advanced people, the people uh, upon whom the future rode, um, were the ones who wrote. And they wrote in specific ways, because the, um, these thinkers tended to map out the different kinds of writing that humans had produced. So cuneiform, uh, you know, leading to eventually to phonetic script um, and phonetic script being, you know, um, superior and more advanced than scripts that rely on characters um, and things like, you know, pictographs and um, being somehow way back in the, in the primitive past. 
Um, so this too, and, and I think this this um, is still there in, in the way a lot of linguists now um, think about languages and written language. Um, also mapped these Eurocentric um, and really deeply racist um, understandings of the world onto what we regarded as writing. Um, certain things didn't count um, and don't count as, as writing systems um, if they don't sufficiently you know, resemble the one that, that we use. Um, and if, if you leave those hierarchies aside and recognize them for what they are, um, then you start seeing writing everywhere. And you start seeing writing um, in places that um, those scholars would, were not able to recognize it. Um, so one of the things I did in the book was talk a lot about um, petroglyphs, the petroglyphs that were all over the place in the, in the Mojave, um, some of which are you know, a few centuries old, and a lot of which are far, far older, some of which are as much as 10,000 years old. Um, and those are mainly dismissed by scholars as sort of you know, representing hunting magic or representing, um, uh, you know, the uh, hallucinogenic visions of shamans and things like that that, that can't be interpreted. Um, but I, I think they, they actually, for many years, people could interpret them. Um, they did have like very specific meanings. They were, it, it was a form of, of writing with, with both, you know, um, which communicated stories and communicated locations and communicated all, all kinds of things that I, that I go into. Um, but I, I think, you know, people have been writing, um, long before, uh, long before, uh, the Sumerians came up with cuneiform, um, in ways that we don't necessarily recognize as writing. Um, and, uh, and I, I think it's something that humans, it's something we do, um, is we, we try to build meaning around ourselves. Um, and we try to leave meaning behind and we try to fix meanings. Um, and, uh, and so I, I expect that as long as, you know, even if it's just scratching symbols into, into a riverbank that are quickly going to be washed away, um, it's my expectation that as long as they're human beings, there's going to be something um, that makes sense as writing. That aspect of your book was really fascinating as well. You write Barack Obama's favorite line, the perfect is, is the enemy of the good. No matter that the good slipped off along the way and was replaced by the crappy a long time since. By the way, he does not use the word crappy. That's a horrible word to use. He uses a far better profanity. This was the mantra of ruling bureaucracies around the world for decades that irrational politics can provide only incremental change, that any attempt to ask for more would be divisive and ultimately disastrous, that we should not uh, fret because... To borrow Obama's other favorite line, which he borrowed from Martin Luther King, the arc of history bends toward justice. We could have faith in progress if no other God. Time has a shape and a direction. We might not be able to see the arc in its entirety, and we should not be so bold and foolish as to hurry it along to demand justice or much of anything, but we should know and be comforted that however it might seem, step by step, compromise by compromise, things are getting better. We're always told, Ben, at least it's better than it used to be. Is better than it used to be showing any signs of no longer being enough? Are the uprisings against police violence an uprising against better than it used to be? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I you know, I think that this notion of progress has always, um, it's worked really well for some people, like it works for Steven Pinker, I guess. Um, but for a lot of people, it's always been weaponized, you know, I, like, 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 Either you're being told, oh, yeah, don't complain. Things are getting better. Um, things are way better than they were, even if, you know, even if you're, 
you know, being asked to spend uh, thousands of dollars for the insulin that you need to keep you alive. Oh, everything's better. At least there's insulin, right? Um, it, it, it becomes a narrative that enforces the, the status quo and discourages any resistance to the status quo. Um, on the other hand, you know, you know, far more brutally, um, you know, people, entire peoples have been um, nearly wiped out because they were, quote unquote, standing in the way of progress, right? Um, sorry, your, your your entire life depends on an ecosystem uh, which we're going to destroy when we build this dam or when we uh, you know push you off your land to make way for uh, settlement because the, the real estate people are really going to going to like it and you know in, in southern Arizona. Um, then you know progress has always you know had this 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 sort of uh, um, pretty homicidal and, and sometimes genocidal edge to it. Um, and yeah, I, I think uh, what we're seeing now is is uh, this extraordinary, um, you know, efflorescence of, of resistance. Um, not the uh, I'm going to say bullshit, and, and you can beat me out later, but the bullshit resistance um, that uh, that we saw, you know, popping up in early 20, 2017. Um, but but people really saying this this cannot stand anymore. Um, and, and we need radical change and we need it now. And we're not going to, um, you know, swallow the, the sugar tablets that you keep feeding us because um, we're hungry. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think these are uh, these are both like terrifying and, and extremely exciting times to be living in. You insert uh, news reports of brutality and cruelty throughout your book. You move from the desert of Joshua Tree to the hyperconsumption of Las Vegas. How much more attuned, aware, sensitive were you to the cruelty and brutality that we constantly experience in urban America when you had just come from nature? How can the desert, in your case, affect the way we view the brutality and everyday cruelty of our political economic system? You know... I don't. I don't know that it made me more sensitive or not. I think I was already pretty pretty well attuned to it, um, and you know I'd been living in Los Angeles for for years uh, before moving out to the desert, um, and had watched uh, as homelessness went from a you know um, extraordinary numbers to absolutely mind boggling numbers. Um, and this, you know, extraordinary levels of dehumanization that most people around me uh, did their very best not to see, you know. Um, and I think the contrast moving from from Joshua Tree uh, to Las Vegas um, was I knew I was in the same desert, you know, I was in the same Mojave. Um, and in places where they were allowed to, the same plants grew. I saw the same kinds of sunsets. I saw the, you know, couldn't see many stars at night, but um, but it was so clearly the same place, and yet it was so incredibly different. Um, you know, I, I think plenty of people have written about the ways in which Las Vegas works as this kind of apotheosis of uh, a certain kind of consumer capitalism um, or casino capitalism, if you want, um, and you know, in which everything is spectacle. Um, and that I think is all the more, uh, naked, um, because it's in the desert and some of the, the, you know, the cruelty, um, of that system is also probably a little more naked, uh, because it's in the desert. Um, you know, it's hot. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of people sleeping outside. Um, and the only people you often see in, in, in you know, in some neighborhoods are the homeless people and the cops who are there to hassle them. Um, and that level of violence there is, is pretty extreme. Um, I don't think it's necessarily that much. Um, it's maybe a little starker there. 
but it, I think it's the same reality in almost every American city, um, where where the urban reality means means more and more um, a uh, you know what we're seeing a, a militarized police force that now is is um, facing off against protesters, um, but that for for decades already has been um, on the front lines of uh, you know. Um, pushing down the, the urban poor. Um, and, and that that seems to not be working at the moment. You mentioned marine ice cliff instability. The idea being that as ocean temperatures rise and icebergs break away from the glaciers that cover West Antarctica, they reveal higher and higher cliffs of ice. If the cliffs reach a certain height, the ice will no longer be able to support its own weight and will begin to crumble off in giant shards. Enormous skyscraper-sized icicles will splash into the sea, each one rendering the cliff behind it taller and more unstable and prone to collapse. In other words, it could all go very suddenly. The destruction would be unstoppable, an article pronounced. This could happen before the century ends, in the next 20 years even. It could mean that in our children's lifetimes, if not our own, the oceans would very swiftly rise 11 feet or more, nearly four times as much as previously projected. Mumbai would be inundated, so would Hong Kong, Shanghai, New Orleans, Jakarta, Lagos, South Florida and Bangladesh, New York and London would not fare well. Not millions, but hundreds of millions of people would be displaced. You obviously wrote this prior to the outbreak that is the novel coronavirus pandemic. What has the global response to the pandemic revealed to you about what the worldwide response could be or will be when marine ice shelf instability reaches its end game? You know, I mean, in some ways, it's 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 quite similar, right? I mean, the um, we've now been hearing um, about these real certainties um, from scientists for decades um, about climate change, about what could happen, about what might happen, and it's all happening now, right? Um, and it's kind of in the background because we're thinking more about the um, the pandemic and we're thinking about the um, the uh, the protests, um, and we're thinking about Johnny Depp or whatever else we're thinking about, but, but it's, it's all still happening. Right? It's very hot where I am. It's been, it's been the mid nineties. I'm in Maryland at the moment. It's been um, near hundred degrees every day. Um, everyone I talk to, my friends in different parts of the country are also, it's hot everywhere. Um, and this is not just freakish heat wave anymore. This is, these are new realities. Um, and you know, what's happened? Uh, world leaders get together every year and talk about doing something. Um, and they're talking about doing something next year. Next year is the year they're they're really gonna they're really gonna do something. <laughs> and except for the ones who now are like like Trump or Bolsonaro, who are like, no, we're really not gonna do anything at all, and who have taken off the masks. Um, so we've seen this this massive collective failure um, in terms of climate change, and we're seeing um, in the kind of sped up version. Um, a massive collective failure in terms of the pandemic. And in although I think it's been pretty interesting. Um, to watch it play out these last few months and see what countries um, and what places it's really gone out of control and which ones it hasn't, right? Um, so the the places with the um, worst rates of infection right now are the United States, uh, Brazil, India, um, Russia, um, which are all, I think, arguably led by, by fascists, right? Um, and places where you have right-wing authoritarian governments in place have, um, across the board, um, 
you know, done horrifically. Um, and places where there are at least vestiges um, of socialist governments um, have done far, far better, right? Vietnam, as far as I know, still has a, not a single death um, from COVID. Um, Cuba has done extraordinarily well. Um, places where there is some um, social ethic and some collective ethic um, have have been able to, to band together as societies um, and take care of them, each other and, and, and their own people. Um, so that's, you know, uh, that's something and it's something we certainly ought to pay attention to here. You know, the other thing I think that's really been pretty interesting um, about, and it's a wrong word to use uh, for a disease that's, um, you know, killed so many people, but nonetheless, um, about the pandemic is... I remember, and I'm sure a lot of people are listening had the same experience when when we first heard um, that Wuhan had been placed under lockdown. I remember feeling, you know, like astonishment. It's like, wow, the Chinese shut down a whole city. Um, they shut down this whole city. They closed down this whole city. Nobody's allowed to go out. Can you imagine, right? Um, and yet, a few weeks later, because that seemed so unimaginable, an entire city absolutely shut down. Um, and a few weeks later, almost the entire world was in that position. Um, and, you know, international commerce all but ceased. Um, fossil fuel consumption plummeted. Um, consumption of all kinds plummeted. Um, all of the things that have been driving the climate crisis, um, at least briefly for a few weeks, plummeted. Um, and we all, you know, uh, had to live uh, very differently, and we still have to live very differently. Um, and obviously, that didn't last, right? The, the um, forces of big business um, were not going to tolerate that for very long and have insisted that no matter what the human cost, um, people need to get back to work, right? Um, so a lot of places that should be on lockdown are no longer on lockdown. Um, but the lesson that I think um, it's easy to forget um, from all of that is that something that seemed absolutely impossible just a couple of weeks before happened. Um, and I think that should open some space for revolutionary consciousness in a lot of people. Um, that, that this thing that they always told us was impossible, right? To lower fossil fuel consumption, like below a certain amount, it happened in a matter of days across the entire globe. Um, so I, I think while um, we struggle with uh, our government's lack of concern for our lives, while we struggle with some of our uh, fellow citizens' lack of concern for our lives, um, I think like it's important to keep in mind um, that you know that there's this slogan that the left adores, right? Another world is possible, um, and you know the, the importance of embracing the possible. Like something that seemed impossible happened and it happened really fast. Um, and I think, uh, and, and, it, and I, I would add that like those lockdowns happened, like you go on lockdown to protect each other, right? Um, it's not just to protect yourself. You stay indoors and, and you, um, to avoid exposing other people who you don't even know to a virus that you may or may not carry. Um, so that, that lockdown happened out of this like massive collective act of, of mutual concern. Um, and it didn't last, um, but I think it does show us that we are capable of, of far more than we've been um, brought up and allowed to, to believe. 
One last question for you. I've got 50 more I want to ask you, but I've only got one time for one last question for you. We've been, and by the way, uh, you were saying uh, uh, another world is possible. One of the taglines that we use on the show because a contributor on our show saw it as a graffiti in Switzerland is uh, another end of the world is possible. So that's kind of unfortunately <laughs> yeah. works with our brand. Yeah, exactly. So uh, one last question for you, Ben. We have been speaking with writer Ben Ehrenreich. He is author of Desert Notebooks, A Roadmap for the End of Time. In 2011, Ben was awarded a National Magazine Award. His previous book, The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine, based on his reporting from the West Bank, was one of The Guardian's best books of 2016. Ben was on This Is Hell last year in February of 2019 to talk about his article at the baffler after the storm progress and the demented quest for historical purity and you can find that interview at our website this is hell.com follow ben on twitter at ben Ehrenreich and find out more about ben and his website ben as we do for all of our guests our final question is the question from hell the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response you and your partner eventually move on to spain you mentioned how you travel to visit the town where the jewish philosopher walter benjamin uh, took his own life in 1940 after being told that his perfectly good papers that should have allowed him to travel to the United States did not meet whatever criteria police were using. He was told to go to a hotel where he would be under guard until the morning when gendarmes would escort him back to Nazi Germany and what Benjamin knew to be his inevitable death. You write, standing on the rocky path behind the cemetery looking out over the dull flat sea, I was overcome suddenly by anger, furious that Benjamin had to stay forever in this shitty little town that had treated him so poorly. He had arrived ill, exhausted, and afraid, and they had found no place for him, no pity and no kindness. They would have done the same to me or to you or to any of us, and their offspring are everywhere these days on this continent and on mine, cruel and craven, living smugly in their fears. What impact will or has climate change had on that cruel, craven culture that thrives on fear? Are we becoming more cruel or Ben, are we finally all in this together? Uh, you know, well, we're all in it together for sure. Um, but a lot of us are becoming more cruel. <laughs> um, you know, I think, um, I, I, I would say both, you know, I, I think we're already seeing, there was an article in New York times, uh, yesterday about these sort of uh, couture services available uh, in the pandemic so that rich people who want to go to the movies can rent out an entire movie theater um, and they can have someone come to their home for $150 and do their nails and all this crap. Um, And certainly with climate change, you know, there are these niches uh, for the rich um, and these, you know, um, certainly lots of money pouring into private security and people buying bunkers, et cetera, et cetera. And whole countries are doing the same thing, right? I mean, Trump's wall uh, is basically a, a bunker for the rich, um, for, uh, you know, seen as a whole nation. Um, so on the one hand, uh, you know, there are large and, and, and powerful forces that have most of the guns and, and, and way more than most of the money um, who are doing everything they can to shove everybody else out of the way. Um, and even if it, you know, they're going to keep destroying the planet um, and, and perhaps they and their grandchildren, maybe even their great grandchildren will be able to live in, in comfort until the barbarians get through the gates and, uh, and take them apart. Um, but then there's the rest of us. Um, and I think it's become more and more clear 
um, especially with the pandemic, as, as it's become, you know, as politicians have articulated uh, throwing, you know, the, our, our absolute expendability, the absolute expendability of most human beings in the country and on the planet. Um, and I, I think that's creating new forms of solidarity in the streets right now. Um, and I think all over the world, as people struggle against, uh, you know, um, locally, um, I think it's creating new forms of solidarity. Um, so, you know, uh, like we always got to fight. Uh, we've always had to fight. Like that's one of the things we do as people and, and that's not going to end. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the stakes are now clearer than they've ever been. Um, and we know who our friends are. Ben, thank you so much for being back on our show. I really, really enjoyed this book a lot. It is a very, very enjoyable read. People should check it out. Your book, again, Desert Notebooks, A Roadmap for the End of Time. Find out more about Ben at his website, benarenreich.net. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Thank you, Chuck. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt. Since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Friday's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up during the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. Jeff wants to sell you another improved fascism. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, captive radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. This week's question mail is what will finally unite the left? Alex, do we have any more answers to this week's question from, from hell? Uh, yeah, I got a couple more via right. Twitter, email, and DM. So this is the rest of them. Uh, Fred B says, well, for perhaps only a microsecond, the memory of Michael Brooks. <laughs> Timecock says, getting bought by Amazon. Two Buck Schmuck says, dosing the water supply. Winking emoji. What will finally unite the left? Robert P says, mutual masturbation. Ugh. I think, Robert, something should not be held in common. <laughs> uh, Neil C says, Joe Biden getting a little too touchy-feely. Yeah. Well, maybe not. Adam B says, angel dust for all. <laughs> Uh, Sean H. says a unity tour. And finally, A.T. <laughs> Moore says, whatever, probably equally offensive name, Dan Snyder ends up picking for his football game, f- football sports game franchise. Uh, who said the memory of Michael Brooks? Uh, that was Fred B. All right. I want to make sure that that gets to my list of favorite favorites. I really like that one. Uh, so uh, if you want to have a chance at winning the This Is Hell face mask, all you have to do is Give us your answer to this week's question from hell. What will finally unite the left? You can leave it at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us on Patreon tomorrow, live at patreon.com slash this is hell at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time and podcast shortly after. We are playing an interview that we did back in 2006 with a guest that was suggested to us this week, 14 and a half years later. Listener Tom suggested we have historian Mark Levine on the show because of an article Mark posted at Al Jazeera on July 15th, headlined From Neoliberalism to Neo to Necro-Capitalism in 20 Years. And so I knew that Mark's name sounded familiar, looked it up, and sure enough, there it was. January 14th, 2006, Mark was on to talk about his then-just-published articles, Christian Peacemakers and the Failure of the Left, Time for a Really New Foreign Policy, and a True Mission Accomplished in 2006. So we were talking about how uh, the mission accomplished the, that Bush said that he had accomplished was a failure in all of his foreign policy was a failure and that failed foreign policy continues to this day the one that got us in this endless war but you can only hear that interview on tomorrow as well as my ego tells me i should be concerned about my own safety and security with the current occupation of chicago by federal 
agents sent from the Trump administration and welcomed by Mayor Lori Lightfoot in some sort of partnership, a partnership that looks a lot like Vichy France. But my ego's a selfish idiot who exaggerates my self-importance, so who's kidding who? Homeland Security has no interest in giving me or the show any publicity by detaining, arresting, or interrogating me, which sucks because this is how it could really use the publicity. But you can only hear me berate my ego and the problems with the Bush administration's foreign policy way back in 2006 that linger with us today by subscribing to our Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. And this podcast immediately after, again, all at patreon.com slash this is hell. Alex, I know you have, Hefe, on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The time has come for big tent fascism. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Is that all there is? You march in a few marches, chant a few rhymes, grin and bear it while the usual rowdies torch and loot a few big box stores and police cars, and then the death squads come and disappear you? How come they get death squads and we don't? How are we supposed to snatch their people off the streets, put them in unmarked vans, take them away to oblivion or to black sites for torture, maybe put them in little coffin-sized concrete cells in, say, Syria? We definitely have the manpower and the woman power and the everything in between and beyond power. There should be a law, kind of like the fairness doctrine of olden times, where if one side gets to disappear people, the other side gets to do it too. And if you can't afford an unmarked van and various torture equipment, such will be provided to you by the fascist government's Equal Rights Department. It doesn't seem fair. How can fascism be so prima facie unfair? I mean, I get fascism being unfair in Europe, Asia, and Latin America, but this is the USA. You'd think our fascism would have checks and balances, some kind of built-in freedom and equality, at least an ombudsman. But no, it's almost like they just don't care. And if anything makes people in the U.S. angry, it's the feeling that their feelings don't matter. Oh, and lots of white people hate when people who aren't white get anything good, even if it's equal to or worse than what those same white people have had forever. But that's no excuse for fascism to be unfair. Fascism has become the national pastime. Fascism is the governing philosophy of the regime under which we live. Fascism should be a role model. What will the children think? Of course, the children killed at the border or in their schools don't think anything. That's part of fascism's built-in efficiency. If fascism is going to monopolize so much of the public's time, energy, and material resources, I, and others like me, would suggest it ought to be made a public utility nationalize fascism. Who could argue against that? I'm sure no decent citizen would mind paying a small tax for free public fascism. They've paid for the military and police all this time. It's more a name change than anything else. And those who want to be active fascists can pay for an annual or quinquennial renewal of their state-issued fascism license. I'm sure they'll do their part. Fascists are nothing if not patriotic. The goal here as it was with the national park system, 
is to make fascism available to everyone. Call me a cockeyed optimist, but I believe everyone should be able to do as they please to people whose skin color, native language, or inscrutable culture gives them the jitters. From something as simple as denying them housing to something more ambitious like extrajudicial executions and large-scale incarcerations and massacres, we're a nation of rugged individualists with grand visions. It's every citizen's right to persecute and to persecute bigly, and in a country as rich as ours, it should be easy and convenient, like voting would be if we were a democracy. Fascism shouldn't be something you have to take a day off of work to enjoy. In fact, it should be integrated into the workplace. Workers should be able to punish themselves for taking too long a lunch break or for an overheard disgruntled murmur. And workers should, of course, have seats on the boards of corporations to make sure their ideas of fascism are included in corporate policies. We can all grow by being open to alternate views and Fascism is no exception. Citizens of the USA are well acquainted with the need for representation and input. We fought for our independence from those powdered wigs in England under the famous brand, No Oppression Without Representation. I know a lot of those currently in charge of fascism don't think they can learn anything from the average citizen or even that the common rabble are up to the task. That's very close-minded and elitist. That's a very narrow attitude. I think we should, we must, expect more from fascism, or it will run the risk of becoming rigid, ossified, and dare I say, tedious. And a tedious fascism is not going to cut it in today's fast-paced marketplace. To be fair, we are making small steps forward. Look at Kanye. You might think of him as just another undeservingly rich, free-associating, loud-mouthed, high-functioning, paranoid, schizophrenic, anal-expulsive narcissist like the president. But Kanye is different. He's creative, talented, bipolar, off his meds, and black. It's very distressing to watch him, even more so for Kim and other family members and friends. No one, though, can minimize the progress represented by his budding presidential campaign. Used to have to go all the way to Haiti or as far as Uganda to find a really thrilling and erratic black megalomaniac. The U.S. has finally caught up to the rest of the world in that aspect of race relations at least, seems we're always the last to do the right thing, even if we only do it in an unstable, distressed, bipolar, musical auteur's mind. I mean, it's getting embarrassing and sad. Sure, if you're rich, it almost doesn't matter what race you are. You're, you're bound to get more out of everything, and fascism is no exception. But what's the point of fascism? It's supposed to invigorate you and the fatherland, make life an adventure, bring you back to your classical greatness, reimpose worn-out social structures, obsolete gender roles and the like, bond you to others with ties of bigoted tribal solidarity, or if you're not part of the tribe, exile or exterminate you. It's supposed to make an inadequate megalomaniac feel like a real man, even if he's Margaret Thatcher. And it's supposed to propel the ship of state full speed ahead into international domination. Oh, and of course, there's money to be made. That's a salient feature we'd do well to remember. But it's looking like you'll have to be specially positioned to cash in on big fascism. It's not that different from capitalism in that way. In fact, big capitalists thrive under fascism. Again, it's unfair. It's classist. It's inegalitarian. What about your independent mom and pop fascists on Main Street? 
or Maple Street, where the monsters are due, where do they fit in? Well, like under uber capitalism, which prioritizes in favor of financial speculation and stock values and neglects or even obstructs the reasonable distribution of goods and services, mom and pop have a hard time competing and eventually get crushed by big fascism, and it only adds insult and embarrassment to injury if mom and pop played by the rules, did everything the correct fascist way, flew the right flags, gave the right salutes, and repeated the correct capricious idiotic evil lies. At least under regular capitalism, the indoctrination is subtle and continuous. Fascism's indoctrinations can be short, sharp shocks, acute whip cracks, demands to be as vile as possible ASAP. And the smaller you are, the more quickly you're expected to adapt. You're small, mom and pop, they say. We'll assume you're lean and light on your feet. But again, this being America, land of the free, where everyone is supposed to be free to be a fascist according to their own conscience, we should all be able to profit from it and have adequate time to implement a violently conformist, if superficial, makeover. Mom and Pop, Charles and David, Ben and Jerry, Cudlow and Kramer, Fred and Lamont, Stiller and Mira, Amos and Andy, Rick and Morty, Key and Peel, Garfunkel and Oates, even Sacco and Vanzetti. There's enough nationalist bigotry for everyone to have a share. You top fascists don't have to hog it all. Come on, people. Come on, America, and I use the word America in its imperialist sense because there are many Americas, North, South, Central, Latin, Meso, Afro, Crypto, but when we talk about the American Empire, which we hardly ever do, we mean the United States of America and all the lands and cultures it has vacuumed up on its Roomba-esque meander around the planet. That's the America I'm talking about. That's the fascist America. But given this globe-trotting accumulation, one might expect it to be a fascist melting pot. White people, by white people I, of course, don't mean any fragile, brittle, desiccated flowers of unself-aware caucasoidism who might be offended by the following statement. White people, I know you have your heart set on a white fascism with stars and bars flying once more over the capital of South Carolina and over the great state of NASCAR and red, white, and blue machine guns at your eternal 4th of July parties with your famously unflavored potato salad, but the rest of us just won't have it. We want a multicultural fascism with a rainbow cabal behind it. We want some heat in our rib rub. We want some piri-piri in our fish fry. We want hot links on the grill. We want some spice in our spite. I know y'all had your hearts set on living in the handmaid's tale, but you should know we're gonna want drag queens to read us our classic fascist fairy tales at bedtime. You know we're still going to want our macho comedians to get busted picking up trans sex workers on Santa Monica at 3 in the morning. You know we're still going to want to find out our congressional champions of super hetero anti-gay legislation are secretly soliciting same-sex hand jobs at rest stops. Boss. And I employ that moniker with the full concatenation of meaning it possesses. Boss. You can't take our flavor away. You can't take our microbrews away, because it's the golden age of beer, and we've developed a complex palate. By the same token, you can't take our full-spectrum gender and ethnicity milieu away. We've taken a walk on the wild side. How are you going to keep us down on the farm, Mike Pence, with your pent-up libido rippling across your jawline? I'm always surprised your molars haven't shattered. Rainbow fascism! It's the only practical option. 
I'm sorry, but if we got to have fascism, if your hearts are set on it, it's going to have to be inclusive. Otherwise, I just don't see how it can work. You might as well go straight to a bunker and shoot yourself and Maria Brown right on day one, or hang yourself up by your feet in the middle of town and throw in the towel. Are you quitters, American fascists? Are you quitters? I didn't think so. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. As you have known my girlfriend for longer than I have, there's something I have to share with you because this is so my girlfriend. She refers to The Handmaid's Tale, the TV series, Mm -hmm. as bitches with wimples. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, when they loosen up in season six, it'll be tits and wimples. (laughs) You know, yeah, she's... uh, The... uh, that's the kind of word that only my girly uses, like when she tells me to go into the larder to get something. <laughs> All right, Jeff. You know, that book, The Handmaid's Tale, came out right when we were in college, about the time that we met. Really? Well, yeah. When that. we were in the same French class together, I'm like, who is that woman dressed like Jackie Kennedy? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like her. All right, Jeffy, until next week. Okay. Stay beautiful. I will. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Question from Hell is, what will finally unite the left? Alex, did we get any more answers to this week's question from Hell? No mas. So, my answer to this week's question from Hell, what will finally unite the left? What will finally unite the left? The left will finally be united when they all realize... This is hell. The answers I liked most were Dennis saying when Twitter goes bankrupt. I did like that. Uh, David saying the left may be united when it's just one person, but there's no certainty. Gorilla Gramophonics, Lin-Manuel Miranda's new bluegrass musical, Jackson, starring John Bolton, streaming now on Disney Plus is genius. Edmar saying free weed with a question mark. Dan Thompson saying $240 worth of pudding with a question mark. Uh, Stevens saying a general understanding that liberalism and liberals are right-winged. And I really did like the answer from Fred B., the memory of Michael Brooks. And Kev's asking, the right? (laughs) Is the right finally going to unite the left? So, Alex, any choices there? Anything you really liked? All my favorites were about death, uh, so you go ahead and pick your favorite. I'm going to go with the one about Michael Brooks. Why not? The guy mentioned Michael Brooks. Nobody else mentioned Michael Brooks. Fred B., you are the winner of this week's question from Mel, and you have won a This Is Hell face mask. If you are not today's winner, you can still get your This Is Hell face mask by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support when, where we have all of our entire store of stuff. So, Alex, who's on next week's show? I'm going to be starting Monday's show by... Uh, Doing a little monologue on my new hashtag abolish DHS campaign I'm trying to get going. Uh, what's happening on the show next week? I don't know. No idea. Oh, we got, we got, uh, Ashley Dawson is going to be back on to talk about his new book, People's Power Reclaiming the Energy Commons. Uh, and then I'm working on the rest of the show, rest of the week uh, tomorrow. We want to thank all the people who supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Thanks to the tithing like commitment of Adrienne. And thanks also goes out to Kenneth. Andrew, Chris, Keith, and Travis, who writes, please have Angela Walker on the show. Alex, do you know who Angela Walker is? No. Should we have her on the show? Mm, No. 
But uh, <laughs> that's beside the point. But for those who do not know, Angela Walker is a labor organizer, bus, and truck driver. That sounds great. Vice presidential nominee of the Green Party of the United States and Socialist Party USA for the 2020 election alongside presidential nominee Howie Hawkins. We do not have politicians on the show, so no. Sorry. Dennis Kucinich was on once. That was awful. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com with Alex revealing this week's hangover cure. And this week it was honey. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including writer Julian Brave Noise Cat, author of the uh, article, The McGirt Case is a Historic Win for Tribes. You can find all of our interviews with Julian at our website by just searching on his name. Also, thanks to historian Gerald Horn for returning to This Is Hell. He is author of the new book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse. His books in 2017 and or 2018 and 2019 were both named as our favorites to be featured on This Is Hell, made that list. So probably that interview and that book will make the list as well. So you can find all of our interviews with Gerald at our website by searching on Horn, H-O-R-N-E. Thanks to Brendan O'Connor, who wrote the Baffler piece, uh, The Accelerating Gyre, which is absolutely phenomenal, and you have to go check that out. Find out more about Brendan at brendan-o'connor.com. And finally, thanks to today's guest, Ben Ehrenreich. He is the author of the beautiful, beautifully written book, Desert Notebooks, A Roadmap for the End of Time. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our January 14th, 2006 interview with historian Mark Levine when he was on to talk about his then just published articles on the failures of the Bush administration foreign policy, which we still all suffer from today. And I'll be trying to convince my ego that I do not have to worry about my personal safety or being detained or interrogated just because federal agents have descended upon Chicago and what the president calls a surge and what our mayor calls a partnership. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.